Let's move into chapter 12, the way that David's army grew. This no longer is about the, just the, uh, the mighty men, but this now is about larger groups who come to join David at two or three different episodes in David's lifetime. So chapter, I'm not going to read every verse um, here and not every name, but uh, beginning at the beginning of chapter 12, these are the men who came to David at Ziklag, and Ziklag is a, it's a, um, an outpost, a military outpost, right on the border of Philistia. So Philistia is a coastal area on the southwest of Israel, down on the, down on the, on the beach, and then it, it gives way to the Judean highlands, and the Judean mountains climb steeply from Philistia upward, and right on that edge, between the meeting of the of the of the of the dome of of the Judean highlands and the Philistine plain, sat Ziklag. And uh, David made a stronghold there. Remember when the army, the Philistine army, is going to attack Saul, they send David away back to Ziklag, and David goes back down there. So he's not there when Saul is defeated. These are the men who came to David there at Ziklag when he was a fugitive from Saul son of Kish, they were among the warriors who helped him wage war, and among them were relatives of Saul from Benjamin, who were able to use bow and arrow and sling stones right-handed or left-handed. What do you call that when somebody can do something with both hands? Ambidextrous. Yeah. Uh, some people are bidextrous. They do something with one hand, but they do something else with the other hand. Um, I throw right and bat left. I am not ambidextrous. I can't throw, I can't pitch a baseball equally with my left hand as I can with my right hand. Although these days, maybe it's deteriorated so much that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, but I bat left-handed. And then we're given their names. So even Saul had some defectors. Then some men from Gad went to David at the stronghold in the wilderness. This is also Ziklag. But where is the tribe of Gad? It's across the Jordan River. Remember, the Gadites were one of the three tribes that stayed over there. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. They were powerful warriors, military men, skilled for war with shield and spear, with faces like lions and with speed like gazelles on the mountains. What flowery language. But... All of the, now in this chapter, all of the troops, as David or whoever is the scribe is who is describing the troops, he always describes their military prowess in different ways. So these guys were ferocious and quick. Um, their names are given in verses 9 to 13, but now verse 14. These men from Gad were leaders of the army. The less capable were leaders for a hundred, the more capable for a thousand. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks. They forced those living in the valleys to the east and west to flee. So what's the first month in the Hebrew calendar? It's the month of Nisan. It's when Passover happens. So it's the beginning of the spring. So it's late March, early April. And when the rains come, uh, that's, that's the first month of the year. Um, and so the, 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 the river had flooded. And the Gadites, and by the way, I don't know, I can't tell you 
Which way did the Gadites come? Was it from east to west or was it from west back to east? Or did they cross both ways? But they forced everybody to flee from the overflooding banks of the Jordan River at this time. So I kind of think that they crossed from the east over to the west um, to join David, but I can't say that for sure here. Men also came from Benjamin and Judah to David at the stronghold. David went out to meet with them and said to them, If you have come to me with peaceful intentions to help me, my heart will be one with yours. But if you come to betray me to my enemies, even though there is no violence in my hands, the God of our fathers will see and judge. And the spirit became, uh, came upon Amaziah, head of the thirty. So here we have a group of men coming from Benjamin and Judah, and he is the head of a group called the thirty. We are yours, David, and we are with you, son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to those helping you, for your God helps you. And David received them and made them leaders of the troops. So these capable 30 come in with their leader. They, they, they pledge peace. It's a threefold peace. Peace, peace to you, peace to those helping you. Um, and in the name of the true God. This is still at Ziklag. Men from Manasseh deserted to David when he came along with the Philistines for the battle against Saul. These men did not help the Philistines because the Sarans of the Philistines decided to send David away. Does somebody have an NIV open? I wanted to point out that the, uh, we're following the EHV here and the translator decided to keep the title of the Philistine ruler in this verse rather than just translate it ruler or leader in some way. He says, Sarans, which is a title that's unique to the Philistines. They had men who were called Sarans. And it's a little bit like the word Pharaoh. It's an Egyptian title for the king or czar. Right? Which is, Tsar is both Russian and German. How do you pronounce Tsar in German? Kaiser. Kaiser. It's the same word as Tsar. Um, by the way, what Latin word do they, those two words come from? Caesar. Caesar. Yeah. But in Philistia, they said Saren. So the Sarans of the Philistines decided to send David away because they thought he will desert to his master Saul with our heads, or it'll cost us our heads if he deserts um, to his master Saul. Um, so this interesting issue when the men from Manasseh uh, decide to defect um, and go over to David, and then none of them ended up helping the Philistines at the battle. It's important that they didn't help, isn't it? Otherwise, David, what would David be guilty of if he had joined in with the Philistines at the Battle of Mount Gilboa? He'd be guilty of a coup d'etat, of raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. When he went to Ziklag, men from Manasseh deserted to David. They were, and there are seven names here, Adna, Josabad, Jediel, Michael, Josabad, Elihu, and Zilathai, leaders of the groups of a thousand which belonged to Manasseh, they helped David against the bands of raiders because all of them were powerful warriors and commanders in the army. I wanted to show you where Ziklag is. So you've got Philistia there, the green on the left. And you see various uh, Israelite cities to the right. Um, 
uh, Beersheba is next to the arrow, to the right of the arrow. That's just about as far south as you can get in Israel, except that Horma is down there also. And then you have um, uh, up to the right from the arrow, eventually you'll get to places like Hebron, the cave of Adullam, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Mitzpah, and so forth. You see how close the Dead Sea is. Um, and this is David going to, uh, he goes to, to a Ziklag, he'll attack the Amalekites and various other places that give him all their spoils. Another view of Ziklag is an aerial view of the, of the hill. Um, it's been excavated um, a couple times. This is not the excavation. This is a student's model from, uh, I forget what university, um, of what the place probably looked at and the condition of the current dig. This is uh, an overhead view of the hill. Um, as you see, the kind of the hill country of Judea spreading out um, off into the, into the west. I'm sorry, into the, to, the, to the east um, above them. And you see how the city, it's got kind of those grid-shaped things dug in. That's the way that an archaeological excavation starts. It's in a grid pattern. They'll go down so far in an area and just do that area. Then they'll move one grid over and so forth and kind of find out how things are mapped. Um, and that way from year to year they can, they can figure out who dug where and so forth. This is a nicer view from the ground level. You see how important that plateau of Ziklag was. It commanded quite an area. It would be difficult to take. And then uh, another view from above showing more of the dig exposed. And in the dry time when the grass is all gone. Um, but Ziklag was an important fortified place, wasn't it? So David holds his army there. It's a wise place to go. Now, as the chapter ends... Um, I'm going to read to you the, the, uh, the, the, the troop movements as they come in and show you a map of Hebron. Now, as, as later, after, after David becomes king, um, these are the troop movements before and after he is crowned so, or anointed. So every day, men kept coming to David to help him until the army came, became great, like an army of God. How big does an army have to be before you start calling it like an army of God? It's just, it, what, too many to count, I suppose, right? Um, although, David did get told how many were coming, so we do have a count. But they came in pieces, bit by bit. The following are the numbers of the troops equipped for war who came to David to Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is modern Hebron. The, um, can you see the purple, can, can I call it purple? The dark red, the wine red splotches in the middle. That's the ancient city of Kiriath Arba, which is what the Bible calls Hebron. So a little village. Um, what's a little village this size? I can't think of one. Um, oh, what, uh, what's down here? Uh, Cambria, how many people in Cambria? A couple hundred? Or a hundred? Or is it 50? Something like that. How many people are in Sleepy Eye? 800, not a thousand? Not a thousand. Um, so if you think of those two halves as being maybe Sleepy Eye sized, north and south, there's a gulch in between. So there's some above and some, some north and some south. That's ancient Hebron. 
Modern Hebron is that plus the yellow plus the white. Okay, that's, that, that's what this map is. It's, a, it's just a city map of modern Hebron showing you the difference, the division between uh, the Jewish part and the Palestinian part. So a disputed city. But I'm going to put in um, thousands of soldiers in a little tiny squares. And I think my squares are too small. So um, if you can see, just look at the white central part of the map. We begin with, from the descendants of Judah, bearing shields and spears, 6,800 equipped for war. So I've got seven squares there, 6,800 soldiers, right? And in little military camps, their tents, their bedrolls, their campfires. So that may be too small of an area. Well, I've got to fit them all in somehow. I don't know how David did it. From the descendants of Simeon, powerful warriors, 7,100 equipped for war. From the descendants of Levi, 4,600. Also Jehoiada, the tribal ruler from Aaron, who had with him 3,700. Also Zadok, a powerful young warrior, and from the house of his father, 22 commanders. This is the Zadok who will be Zadok the priest throughout David's lifetime and he will be one of the loyal few with David even unto the last rebellion. Um, and Zadok will be there when Solomon is, is anointed king. From the descendants of Benjamin, Saul's relatives, 3,000. Until then, the majority of them had been keeping their connection with the house of Saul. From the descendants of Ephraim, 20,800 powerful warriors Men who had earned a name for themselves in the house of their fathers. Remember, the military exploits are always added on here. So we, we, we get to know what kind of soldiers these were. Verse 31. From the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were des designated by the name to come, or rather designated by name to come and make David king. So they were sent by their tribe from across the river. David is our king. From, can you see it, where it got added? It's that. One, from the descendants of Issachar, men who understood the times and what Israel should do, 200 leaders and all their relatives under their command. How many would 200 leaders be in command of? 1,000, maybe 2,000, I don't know. Anyway, a little group. However, from Zebulun, 50,000 men qualified to serve in the army, ready to line up for battle with all kinds of weapons for battle and with undivided allegiance. That's an important point for David, isn't it? They, these men are loyal to David, personally loyal to David. From Naphtali, uh, a thousand commanders and with them 37,000 men with shields and spears. By the way, it's almost supper. What are you going to make? for all these soldiers. I mean, that always occurs to me, is what are they going to feed them? Um, from the Danites, 28,600 men ready to line up for battle. From Asher, 40,000 men qualified to serve in the army, ready to line up for battle. And from east of the Jordan, from Reuben, Gab, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, with all their weapons of an army ready for battle, 
120,000 men, all these soldiers organized for battle, totally committed, came to Hebron to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of Israel also was totally committed to make David king. They were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, because their fellow citizens had prepared provisions for them. So they brought their food. Um, how do you keep meat fresh for a week in ancient times? There's an easier way than salt. You bring it on the hoof. You bring it along with you and you just kill it when you need it. Yeah. And by the way, they had been given provisions. The brown spots are their donkeys and camels and oxen and everything else. So their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali, way up north, were bringing food and donkeys, camels, mules, oxen, including provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisin, wine, olive oil, oxen, sheep in abundance, because there was joy in Israel. What three-day event was happening in Hebron that they would send this vast army for? It was David's anointing. This was David becoming king. It's not, we're not told that clearly in the text, but this is the event. That's what's happening here. David became king, and Israel is there in force. By the way, if you go back and add up all of those soldiers, and I assume that that one group that only told us they had 22 commanders, that they have 1,000 people, can I get away with that number? The total is... 340,122 men and officers. That's this army that came to David. That's more than a quarter of a million troops for three days. That's uh, what? Woodstock. Right? Except they were organized. They, had, they knew where they were going to sleep. They knew where their tents were. They knew what was for supper. They weren't just depending on Mrs. McGuffin up in the kitchen you know, to bring them all a pancake or whatever it was. Um, the vast army that was there to support David. However, what do we know about this time that Chronicles doesn't tell us? Saul's family was holding out. So there were still men of Benjamin and by the way, the second smallest group here is Benjamin. Just 3,000 troops went to David. The rest stayed. Um, but 10, 20, 30,000 Benjamites, are they going to stand up to 340,000 under David? No. So the rebellion of Ishbosheth is not going to get very far. Um, he can kind of run and hide for a while. It's going to be about a year. And Ishbosheth will be put down, but then we get um, to the reign of David, king of Judah in Hebron. Seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem for a total of 40 years. I have a couple of questions on the back sheet. Um, the underlying question How does this chapter address the underlying question that I've proposed for the book? which is, are we still God's people? Well, did David have an easy time becoming king? No, not at all. Not at all. But what happened? David stayed loyal to God, and what did God do? He blessed David. He sent him a vast army for his coronation. Um, is, is the size of the army important? 
to God? No, no. Is the size of the synod or the church important? No, no. We have somebody in town who is uh, uh, not a called worker. They happen to belong to a different Lutheran church body. And uh, uh, she occasionally has, um, I, I've, I've been caught as she talks to me about our Wisconsin synod and she kind of laughs at, oh, you little wells. You know, um, but I, uh, I don't have a problem with being a small synod. How big is the Wisconsin Synod? Do you know? Well, it's a little under 500,000. Um, and it's been that number for a very long time. We gain, we lose, we gain, we lose. We, have, we, we, we are growing out of the country faster than we're growing in the country. That's okay too. Um, what are some things that a small church can do that a big one necessarily can't personal support to one another yeah yeah when we say the prayers in church in a smaller church you know all the names right you know you remember the names um what about things like church discipline it can be easier in a small church um, not necessarily, but it can be easier in a small church. Are there advantages that a large church has over a smaller one? There can be. You know, uh, there, there, there are financial advantages and things like that. Um, uh, there can be an appeal to some people. A smaller church appeals to one kind of personality. A large church appeals to another kind of personality. We've had people join us here at St. Paul's precisely because we're a little bit bigger. We've also had people stay away from St. Paul's and go to St. John's because the perception is that St. John's is smaller. How much smaller is St. John's than St. Paul's? It's several hundreds. That's the difference between the two. Um, not thousands, but a few hundreds. Um, and yet St. John's has a perception of being a smaller congregation. Really, I think of St. Paul's as being five congregations. Right? We kind of have the Monday group, the 8 o'clock group, the big 9.30 troop, right? The 11 o'clock group. That we have the, the Monday nighters. We also, of course, of course, have a sixth congregation, don't we? Um, all of our many shut-ins. Um, Mr. Cushel's in charge of organizing who sees who when. We just got the new list today, which is an eight and a half by 11 sheet held sideways with the, num with the names in four columns of, of all the various shut-ins that we've had. That list has been uh, uh, more than 100 at different times. It's currently less than 80, um, but, uh, but it's grown and shrunk over the years at different times. Um, what are some ways that a large church can hang on to small church advantages? Intimacy. Sure, yeah. That's, I think that's easiest to do when you have small groups that are available. The more small groups that we have going, the, the healthier it can be. The pastor that we've ca called, Pastor Ailhofen, is one of the synod's experts in small group Bible study ministry. Um, he has ways of doing it that I would never have thought of. 
And I hope that when, if he comes, he hasn't accepted yet, he's taking a little bit more time to think about it, but we've talked about this, if he should come, and I really pray that he does, um, we would probably take the program of adult Bible study that we have at St. Paul's and split it in half. I would continue to monitor the larger group groups, and he would take over the smaller group uh, groups and start some new things that would be exciting and and, and really interesting. And if he should choose to remain, I think I'd stay in contact with him and try to learn from some of the things that he's capable of um, to accomplish some of those things here. Um, we just all have different gifts, and it would be exciting, really exciting to have him here. Right. The smaller you are, the more accountable you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why we like... Um, uh, 20 years ago, Pastor Sutton began using the idea of the pattern of the Trinity for our committees. Three people is a good group. Um, if you have less than three, that's too few people are doing too much work. If you have more than three, then somebody kind of slips through and doesn't have to do very much. When you have three in a committee, it seems to work really well that you just kind of you hold each other accountable, but you each have enough to do. And if there's way too much to do, then you shouldn't be a committee, you should be a board, you know, or something along those lines. But it's a good way of thinking. That's really all of our time. I think we should probably break there. We'll pick it up at chapter 13 uh, then next time. Um, let's just close uh, with the general benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.